Thanks, Richard, uh, for the prayers. Uh, good morning. Uh, I guess it's a good morning for some of y'all. Uh, <laughs> gracious. I'm the one nervous, not y'all. All y'all had to say was good morning. Uh, it is always a, a blessing. It's a privilege to be here uh, before you guys. Uh, I thank Alex uh, each chance he gives me this opportunity. Uh, no matter how busy um, the week is for he or myself, um, when we are called to preach, we we have to find the hours and the dedication. It's hard sometimes. Uh, I'm probably the best procrastinator in here. Uh, we can um, compete for that later. Um, but uh, Alex, he, he trusts me, uh, or he trusts the Spirit to use me enough that no matter how much... Um, of me, I want to put in my sermon. He trusts that the Spirit will take that out and uh, you guys will be helped. Um, so I thank you for that. Hope he's getting plenty of rest, uh, he and his family. Um, to the session, the great leaders here at the church, um, you guys constantly uh, do an amazing job of leading us and finding ways to um, better do that. And um, constantly put yourselves on the back burners, and especially your, your family, your wives. We thank you, uh, ladies, for. Um, allowing them and helping them uh, be of great service to this church. Uh, and to all of you that make up this congregation, uh, man, I, we had a good time uh, last night uh, at the uh, fiesta for the uh, my uh, me and the Lord's wedding shower. Uh, so uh, enjoy the food. Um, enjoy uh, the many love that you got, the much love you guys showed. Uh, so we're really grateful. We're looking forward to uh the, the wedding in about three weeks, 20, 20 days um, now. Uh, so uh, it's getting closer and closer. Uh, so uh, I'm excited about that. A reporter, a reporter interviewed a man one time on his 100th birthday. And the reporter asked the man, what has been your greatest uh, your pr most proud moment of your whole life. And the man says, I don't have a single enemy in the world. And the reporter being shocked said, wow, that is amazing. Can you tell me, tell the public, how did you achieve such an amazing feat? And he said, to be honest, I just outlived all of them. The, the man, he missed one very critical thing, though, right? That there is an enemy out there that he has not and will not outlive. Uh, Alex, in this sermon series, the Gospel League, in his first two sermons, and the goal of the entire uh, series is to make you guys more aware of our adversaries. Uh, it's a lot of people that do not think Satan is that big of a threat or that he exists at all. And some of those people claim to be Christians, Bible-believing Christians. And so you get to ask them, how's life going? And they say, everything is fine. I have no enemies. And they forget that there is an enemy out there. There are enemies out there that you cannot see, that 
You cannot fight with your hands and with your feet. You cannot fight because the war is spiritual and not physical. And Alex in the Gospel League wants to name heroes that help us defeat these enemies. Uh, unlike the Justice League, these heroes aren't strong in, in physical stature. They're not muscular. They don't fly around with capes on. They don't use different gadgets to out uh, display or outfeed their opponent. That's not what these uh, heroes are. These heroes aren't the many great heroes that we often think of when we think of heroes of the faith, such as uh, Samson or Moses or Abraham or Noah. These heroes, like our adversaries, are spiritual. And so you have become aware of your adversary. Uh, last Sunday, Alex talked about the Holy Spirit, and we will continue to become aware of our arsenal, our weapons. Uh, if you was to look real quick, we won't be here at this portion, but for about two minutes. Ephesians 6. We're going to talk about the word. Now, in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the word in verse 17. He says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Uh, I'm reminded of the phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And not soon after that phrase became popular, people started to disagree with it and say, hold on. There was a lot of words that have been said to me that hurts me. And the Bible tells us that this word, this word, can cut like a two-edged sword. Because both ways. So then I, I came over a little rhyme, sticks and stones, break my bones, but the sword of God will cut you both ways. It doesn't rhyme, but it's catchy, I think. So we're going to look at this word, this, this right here, this word. Not the words of your friends that can possibly hurt you emotionally. But we're going to look at this word, the, the the sword of the spirit that can cut both ways. Um, I like Lecrae and Andy Mini. I'll quote them almost every time in uh, my sermons. I'm trying to make you guys more hip. Uh, and they, they look at uh, the sword of the spirit, the word, the Bible, and they said, uh, double edge, I like that, but I got something better. Let's, I got something better. Let's call it a double barrel. So they compare it to a gun more so than a sword. And they say, you know, I got 66 bullets, which would be the books of the Bible. Uh, some of them are old, some of them are new, but they still get the job done. Things like that. When you flip the page, you use the trigger finger, things like that. So I'm just trying to help you guys to help transition with me to look at this word, the Bible, as a weapon, as part of the gospel league that is here to help you defeat your enemies. There was a, a young boy doing homework for school, and he asked a man at the library, he said, sir, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And the man said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> it appears that a lot of us, when it comes to the word, 
is, that, is in that boat. We're in the, the boat of ignorance and apathy. We don't know and we don't care. Even in a Presbyterian, Presbyterian church where we like to be able to quote certain scholars, some of us may have gone to the point where we can quote books about the Bible better than we can quote the actual Bible. This word has been sold more than any other book in the world. And it's also been ignored more than any other book in the world. Ignored more than the warning from the Surgeon General on the cigarette box. This word has been purchased by more people than any other book in the world, and yet I'm willing to bet my life savings, $20-ish, that it has captured more dust than any other book in the world. We've used it more of a display thing. People that don't even believe in God has a Bible because they like the story sometimes. Or, well, it's the popular thing to do. So what we're going to look at is this word. We're going to look at this word. And we're going to come from 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Open our eyes, our hearts, and ears to this word. Marco, can you mic uh, this microphone right here? 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. He's going to read it. Uh, you can use the preacher mic or that mic, whichever one you feel comfortable with. Come on. This might be a little foreshadowing here. I'm not a prophet. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Now, Timothy wasn't this young when he was reading Paul's letter. He was probably around 30 plus. Uh, but you can see that Paul, being a much older guy, writes to him in his youthfulness, and he has given him so much advice. And here are some very important words. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Amen. So that will be our verse for today. I got two main points. Uh, I feel like I've talked enough, uh, enough already concerning the sermon of today, concerning this word. My first point is you can trust this word. And secondly, you need this word. You can trust this word because Paul writes here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that it is the very breath of God. This is the only time we see this word in the Bible and outside the Bible. The word is Theonustos. It's, it's, very, it's pretty easy to break up. Paul uses the word for God, theo, where we get the word theology or atheist or monotheist. We get theo, and he decided to combine it. He said, this is the best way I can explain Holy Scripture with the word pneumo, pneuma, which is a word that can be for spirit, it can be for breath, it can be for wind. And what he does is he combines the word and said, this is the best way to describe these words here, the scriptures, the Holy Scripture. It is God 
breathe. That he spoke, he breathed, and this came into existence. You can trust this word because it is God breathed. And what we can tell from the Bible is that when God breathes, when God speaks, when God uses his wind, things happen, right? Genesis 1, there was absolutely nothing. And God said, let there be. (laughs) And he had no choice. God speaks to people like Abraham, Noah, and Moses. And no matter what their former life was, they heard God speak, and they had no choice but to do what he called them to do. Adam was formed by God, but yet had no life in him. And then God did what? And Adam became a living organism. We can trust this word because it is God breathed. When God breathes, things happen. When Jesus tells demons to come out of something, they have to come out. When a storm is raging and Jesus looks at it because he is 100% God and 100% man, being God saying, cease, be still, he tells the wind from his wind to stop. And it had no choice but to stop. The same will happen in your life. Storms of life are raging. Things are going all over the place, chaos. And then the Prince of Peace comes. And he may not tell your storm to stop, but he may move you into the middle of the storm. And do you know that in the midst of a storm, there's peace? Did you know that? When he breathes, things happen. Lazarus was there for four days, right? Lazarus, come forth. How's this going to happen, Jesus? I'm assuming somewhere between Lazarus come forth and Lazarus cometh forthing that <laughs> Jesus breathed into Lazarus. He is God. We can trust this word because it is God-breathed. I like what Vody Bauckham said, a pastor in Texas, uh, when asked by one of his professors in England why he believes the Bible. He says this, I believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Uh, they reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings were divine rather than human authority. What he is getting at and what many scholars are, have used to support the trustworthiness of the Bible, this word, is that we can trust the Bible for two main reasons. Internal collaboration and external corroboration. I'm not a rapper. These are actual terms. Internal collaboration. Think about this. Just think about it. 66 books written by over 40 authors during a period, that means from Moses, the first author, to John, the revelator, the last author. There's a period of 100 and about about 1,600 years that all this has been written. The original text in the Hebrew was used uh, in two languages, mostly Hebrew in the Old Testament, and some Aramaic, and in the New Testament, uh, Koine or Greek. Three different languages, 40 authors, 
three different continents, they were from three different continents, over a period of over almost 1,600 years, and they all testify to the exact same thing. What makes it even more interesting to me is that we have had, since, you know, we've started digging and all this stuff, we have had over 26,000 archaeological digs that support what the Bible says that has in here. Nothing contradicts it. They have yet to find anything that contradicts it. We have people that believe something that contradicts the Bible, but they have yet to find anything that we found here on earth. We dug, we moved rocks, we removed dirt, we moved trees. We found, we went to the land that the Bible says this happened. We went to look for it. And we may not find some stuff sometimes. That doesn't prove that didn't happen, though. But everything we have found proves that the Bible is true. You can trust this word. Inside the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 6, uh, 16 through 21, I'll read it to you. He said this. Remember, he followed Jesus. He was one of his major disciples. He said this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So he says, we actually heard God proclaim Jesus to be his only son. And then he says this, and we have the prophetic word, this word, which is more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Then he says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He was there. He heard God speak to Christ and call him his only son. And he says, we have something that can, that's even better evidence than that. This word. You can trust this word. Luke was writing to a student, a friend of his. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world have delivered them to us, it seemed to me good also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then he continues to write the rest of his book, Luke. He was an eyewitness, and he wanted to tell his friend the things that he was taught. This is exactly what happened, so that you can be even more sure of it. My brothers and sisters, you can trust this word. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What Paul is saying here is the things I'm writing to you, there are still people out here that saw it. And if you don't believe me, you can go ask them. To the people he's writing to, he's not telling us to go look for them. You can trust this word. So we have internal collaboration, but we also have external corroboration, which simply means there's stuff on the outside of the Bible that's not written in the Bible that supports his claim. For a lot of times, we've heard criticism that the only place that mentions Jesus and the stuff that he does here is the Bible. That simply is not true. We have several reliable, ancient, non-Christian, mostly Jewish historians, which means what? They're not biased towards the Christian religion. They don't believe in Christianity. They don't believe in the doctrines of some of the, uh, some of the doctrines. But they are able to write down things that they know for sure is true, such as, here's a basic picture of what most of them or all of them say. There was a guy named Jesus from Nazareth. He lived a very wise and virtuous life. He was crucified in Palestine under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at Passover time, being considered the Jewish king. He was believed by his disciples to have been raised from the dead three days later. His enemies acknowledged he performed unusual feats. His small band of disciples multiplied rapidly, spreading even as far as to Rome. His disciples denied polytheism, lived moral lives, and worshiped Christ as divine. You can get this information from so many historians. People that you may have heard of, like Josephus uh, the historian or, uh, or Pliny the Younger, people like that. What I'm saying is you can trust this word, the sword of the spirit, the double-edged sword or the double-barreled shotgun, however you want to look at it. You can trust it because we have over 26,000 external corroborations to support it. Uh, one thing I did find really fascinating uh, was there was a guy who is a biblical scholar. His name is R.D. Wilson. Now, check this out. He was, he was fluent. He was fluent in 45 ancient languages and dialects. Now, I know some of you guys are like, I'm still trying to get back in that English class that we had last. <laughs> 45 ancient languages and dialects. He meticulously analyzed 29 kings from 10 different nations. Each king was mentioned in the Bible and was well documented by other historians as well. So you have the Bible who has a list of all these kings. If you ever read your Old Testament, you will see that. And then you have secular historians that also kept up with as many kings as they could. This is what he said. This is what he said. Each king that was mentioned in the Bible, as well as documented by secular historians, uh, offers a means of comparison. He was able to show that the names as recorded in the Bible 
match the artifacts perfectly down to the last yolk and tittle. I'm talking about that's little slashes that you don't even know why they're there and little dots that probably have another reason why they're there, but I haven't learned that in Hebrew class yet. So he says this, the Bible was also completely accurate in its chronological order of the kings. My brothers and sisters, you can trust this word. I did my best to confirm that then. But you must realize the importance of this truth in your life. You can't just know that the word is true. You must understand that you need this word. Amen? You must understand that you need this word. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is getting ready to come to the conclusion of his life. I remember the first time I read this at Jackson State with Elbert, uh, and he was breaking it down. He was talking to us about what's going on. It's, it's, it made me tear up a little bit. And, uh, because Paul here is writing a letter to one of his younger mentors, and he, it's a very personal letter. It has doctrine. It has a lot of sound things, but it also has little things in it like, will you please bring my coat that I left so-and-so because it's about to get wintertime and it's really cold. Uh, it has really good life practical advice, but then he has things such as uh, he did pretty good damage to me this time. I'm probably not going to make it. Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege, and he has reminded Timothy that you have this word in you and it has been deposited in you and we are entrusting it in you. You learned it from your grandmother, he said. And we see it in you. Timothy, fight the good fight. I've already fought it. I'm coming to the end of my race. You must carry this on. So he's telling Timothy these things. He's telling Timothy that you got to be a good soldier. That you, you, no farmer does this without that. Like he, he's giving him all this wisdom advice, and then he's able to throw in stuff like, can you tell so-and-so I say hello? Because he's coming to the end of his days, and he's telling Timothy, flee youthful, youthful passions. Don't get caught up in all the stuff this world has to offer. There has been a lot of people that have turned from the faith that we was once with me. Even some of my friends, he said, I can't blame them, have left me because they didn't want to get the same punishment I got. So he's writing all these things, and he tells Timothy this. You, however, verse 10, chapter 3, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and will have firm and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, which is his grandmother, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My brothers and sisters, you need this word. You need it for the teaching aspect. We come to this word as learners. We don't come to it as people that have got it all figured out. No matter how much you think you got it figured out and memorized, read it again, watch what happens. We come to this word as learners. Because the Bible just doesn't teach us that Christ died for our sins, but it teaches us how to be good spouses and good parents and good children. It's profitable for teaching. You need this word. It's also profitable for rebuke or, in some translation, reproof. This is almost like the next thing, which is correction, but it's a little different because rebuke is often targeted at the way you think. So this word, this scripture, this right here is good because it can confront the wrong ideas you have about life. You carry misconceptions. You carry wrong beliefs about God. Go to this word and watch what happens. This word is good and profitable for rebuking. Because it can help you change your definition of God, your purpose of life. You need this word. It's also good for correction. Again, now we're looking more at character flaws, behavior. It's similar to rebuke, but it focuses on your behavior instead of your beliefs. The Bible corrects us when we get off track in life. You don't know which way to go. You want to know whether or not you should have done that or said that. You need this word. This word will correct your wrong behavior. So it's profitable for correction. Then he says it's profitable for training in righteousness. It helps you make the right decisions and choices. Training in righteousness focuses on the Bible's role in helping us live the kind of lives that please God. So what does that mean? The life of integrity, the life of good morals, doesn't come naturally. In fact, it seems like babies learn to claim things and be selfish and say mine, and they learn to say no, and they learn to sometimes lie before they learn how to share her. Because they have to be trained and corrected and taught. And what Paul is telling Timothy is that the Bible will train us to do which we cannot learn on our own. He says it is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It says man of God, but the translation can be man of God or man and woman of God. It does not just apply to man. This word impacts all that learns from it, is rebuked by it, 
corrected by it, and is trained in righteousness by it. It's not just man. Mark 1, 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, but not just men. Y'all see that? Luke 2, 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, but not just man. Matthew 4, 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's true that man should not live by bread alone, but not just man. So we can actually say here, man and woman of God, person of God, or if you want to give it more of an Old Testament feel, messenger of God. Every word in this book, every word, is relevant for our lives today. We do not pick portions we like or which sentences is the easiest for us to agree with. Uh, at the camp that I worked with uh, this summer, we go to uh, Chapman to eat uh, lunch. And it took me a while to realize this, but a lot of the kids were not eating their vegetables. They, they'll, they'll eat the chicken nuggets or pizza or spaghetti that they give them. They'll eat the fruit, the pears, pineapples, or strawberries. I'll pass out cookies. They'll eat the cookies. Then I started realizing, wait a minute. You didn't get the beans that they offered or the broccoli that they offered. And I said, not in my camp. I got to get these kids to grow strong. Get these kids to get some good nutrition in them. Miss Mary Ann walking around eating fruit all day long. We Somebody got to compete with that, right? And so I said, wait a minute, y'all. We're not just going to choose what fruit or food we want to eat here at this cafeteria. These people have cooked it for us. They have made it for us to eat and enjoy it. So if you don't get your fruit and vegetables, you don't get any dessert from me. And, man, the kids are asking the ladies, please pile it on. Just, just don't, don't skip me this time, right? That's what the word of God is like. It's like Mr. Lyle at camp in the cafeteria. You don't choose which parts you want. It says all scripture. That's what Paul says. Beginning of 16, all scripture. I looked at the word all in Greek. It's, it's a very interesting meaning. It means all. Did y'all know that? That's interesting information. We do not choose which part of it we want. Oh, I'll read the Psalms. I'll read the Proverbs. Ooh, Lamentations look kind of hard. Jeremiah, he got some tough stuff in there. Paul, ooh, he, he's always telling me I'm a sinner. I think I'm going to go back to Psalms today. No, all scripture, as believers of the Bible, as Christ's disciples, we are to use all the scripture in our daily learning, but as we teach others as well. Don't say, well, this part is too hard for them. They may not ever come to Jesus if I tell them this part. That's not what the Bible says. All scripture. We do not come to it looking for it to support our truth. This is my stance in whatever, medicine, politics, whatever. This is my stance. Let me find out where the Bible is at. You know, a lot of people did that. A lot of people, when they wanted to prove that they was okay with doing slavery, they just picked out the verses that said the word slaves in them. And, you know, the argument could have been, well, if you want to use the Old Testament 
and, and, and slavery, which is a different meaning than what they was using, of course. But why won't you use the seven year where everybody go free? Well, see, they skipped that part. Why? That's not the part they wanted to hear. And so you don't choose which part of this you want to adhere to. Commandments 1 through 4, that sounds pretty good. Number 7, uh, I really like that car. All scripture. And we, it uh, changes our truth. Why? Because it is the absolute truth. It is the ultimate authority. And if any other truth you know of contradicts this truth, then that truth is no longer true. That's the most basic way I can put it. This word is the truth. And it contains the truth. And that truth is Jesus. Jesus according to John that we read in response to reading, is the very logos, the very logic, the very word of God. This word. Jesus is the very word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things was made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then if you read Colossians 1, 15, 17, you start getting a little bit more spooked out because he says concerning Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things Hold together. And John said, just in case you don't understand who me and Paul is talking about, he goes on to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word. This word died for our sins. And he was raised from the dead. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming back. And the only way you can be ready, Alex told you last Sunday about the Holy Spirit, is if the Holy Spirit makes this come true to you. Before I go, I want to read a poem. It's by an uh, anonymous author. Um, But if it goes like my last sermon, somebody might yell out who the actual author is. On the table, side by side, the Holy Bible and TV guide. One is well-worn and cherished with pride, but that one is not the Bible, it's the TV guide. As the pages are turned, what shall they see? It doesn't matter, just turn on the TV. Then is the confusion started, for they all can't agree what they shall watch on that old TV. So they refer to the book in which they all confide. But it's not the Bible, it's the TV guide. The word of God is seldom read, maybe a verse or two, just before bed. Exhausted and sleepy, tired as can be, not from reading the Bible, but from watching TV. Then back to the table, side by side, the Holy Bible and the TV guide. No time for prayer, no time for the word. The plan of salvation is seldom heard.
forgiveness of sin so full and free we find in the Bible and not on TV. I know a lot of you don't have a TV guide anymore, but there's something that you're spending way more time in than you are in your word. Salvation only comes from this word. I'll talk more about this word next Sunday. Amen.